Good evening, everybody. It's a pleasure to welcome you here this evening. Um, So my name's uh, Julia Black, Professor Julia Black, and I'm Pro-Director for Research here at the LSE and um, also a member of the Law Department. My background's in law. And it's a great honour to welcome Dr. Perna Sen here today. So I'm sure, as you know, Perna is the Deputy Director of the Institute of Public Affairs here at the LSE, and she's been conducting a research project called Above the Parapet, Uh, which has been running out of the IPA. And this event, which is entitled, as you can see, Above the Parapet, Women in Public Life, marks the 10th and final lecture, actually, in our LSE Works series. Um, So the LSE Works series, uh, which is run here, is a series of public lectures which we began in 2011 just to showcase some of the latest research that comes out of the LSE by some of our departments and and research centres. And in each session, academics present key research findings um, and really try to tie those into implications for public policy. So it's a part of that um, knowledge engagement agenda, which we work very hard at at the LSE. So we had the first series in 2011, next series in 2015, in 2013, sorry, and then um, the last series here in 2015. And you can get all of those on, I'm not sure it's on that slide, but anyway, you can find them all on our LSE events website. So there are podcasts, um, videos, PowerPoint presentations, all the whole shebang that you would expect, okay? It's all there on the website. Um, And also, as part of um, our engagement activities, we also run a research festival, and that's running tomorrow. Um, And the IPA project above the parapet is going to be featured there, and there'll be research there on women in public life in a a multimedia exhibition, which we have work of research from the LSE and elsewhere. Um, And so you'll be able to see some more about this project um, there. It's actually just here. It's just outside, actually, these rooms um, just outside um, down in the bottom ground floor of the now. So that's tomorrow evening at Hopper 6, or 6 o'clock, I think. Um, but turning back to this project, so tonight Pern is going to present and outline some of the initial findings of this project. And anecdotal accounts of women who've succeeded in public life are often troubling in terms of the obstacles that they face, the difficulties they've had getting heard, perhaps the price that they've paid by raising their heads um, above the parapet. But what we don't know very much about is how women got there, what their journeys were, what their personal paths were that took them to where they've ended up, at least at the particular point um, that the research is focusing on. Obviously, they haven't ended their journey at this point. We wouldn't want to have that be a curse on their careers, okay? So it's just how they got to where they happen to be at this particular moment. And the Above the Parapet project, I think, has been um, astonished itself and its success, actually, in the number of people it's managed to interview, the number of people who've willing, been willing to engage and to tell their own personal stories uh, behind some of the some quite high-profile figures um, that we all know. Um, I've also been asked to, to mention a little bit about my story. Um, Perna did interview me, which is very sweet of her. Um, <laughs> I think my, my sole claim to being on a parapet, actually, is, is not so much my claim to fame as... as um, the LSE's woefulness to have any more women in senior management, actually. So I shouldn't really be extraordinary. Um, and I shouldn't really be above a parapet because there should be more of me uh, in the senior management team. And there is the only the one. Um, I'm delighted that actually our new director of library services is Nicola Wright, who you can t- guess is also a woman. Uh, so that makes two of us now on the professional services division side and on the um, academic side. So 
be honest, I'm not extraordinary and uh, I shouldn't be extraordinary because there should be many more. However, I was uh, reading recently, that is something I vaguely have time for still, uh, which some stat somewhere, which said that even if there are just 10% of women in senior positions, that is sufficient to act as a role model uh, for others to aspire to be in those positions as well. So let me tell you that there is really nothing very unusual about me. Uh, and if I can get there, I'm, a lot of other people can too. Okay. Um, and I, I, so I just leave that with you. Okay. Um, so I'm going to now turn to Perna, actually, because she's got many more interesting stories to tell uh, and many more insights, I think, which we, um, we can all learn from. So just a little bit around the, the techie stuff and the, and the social media stuff. Um, phones on silent, please. Uh, and if you are tweeting, then the hashtag for today's event is, as you can see there, hashtag um, LSE works. Um, and the event is going to be recorded. So hopefully we can get the podcast up there without any technical difficulties. But it does mean when you ask questions, I think we have to speak into this little mic or a little roving microphone so it does mean although we're quite a small group it sounds a bit odd to ask you to use a microphone it is for the purposes of the recording and the podcast okay so Perna can I ask you to kick off absolutely thank you Julia and um I'm going to stay here because my colleague Jade is going to take us through the slides and I also want to um in a moment, I think I'm going to pick up some of your introductory comments about yourself because they're very revealing, actually, of what we found in the research. Um, I'm going to be analysed on stage. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that was part of the plan. <laughs> Personally. Um, so, yes, Julia gave a very nice introduction as to why we're doing the project. And um, <clears throat> we're starting from a recognition that there are very few women in seniority in many aspects of private life. Uh, private life, public life, uh, and that's been a growing issue of concern for a number of organisations and people. Um, but what we don't know beyond that is, as Julie said, how women get to those positions of seniority, the few that get there, how have we got there? And our intention is to, to track those journeys and to learn from them and see what they tell us. So what we've done is we've uh, very... Uh, Fortunately, got some funding to get us going from the annual fund at the school and from the Alison Weatherfield Foundation, which has allowed us to do what we're, we're doing uh, until August. Uh, and I'd just like to say thank you also to our uh, advisory group, which has been incredibly helpful in steering us through uh, the work so far and as we go forward um, over the next few months of, of the research. Um, we... I have got some data I'd like to share with you, which I'll do in just a moment. But I want to start by saying there are a variety of reasons and prompts for organisations and others to come to the, the, the recognition and the problematisation of so few women being senior leaders, uh, politicians, policy makers uh, in different parts of the world. And one quote I've got for you there, for me, captures a lot of the sentiment behind that interest, which is... We're wasting talent, we're not getting ac ac adequate diversity, and therefore we're not making the right sorts of decisions in public life and public policy, which bring the best outcomes for complex and diverse societies. So the OECD quote there is about finding innovative solu solutions to foster inclusive growth. That's, that's not the only quote I've given you, could have given you. There are others, but along similar lines, about missing talent, missing potential, and having suboptimal outcomes. 
Suboptimal can be the language used, inefficient can be the language used, and unrepresentative is also another angle into this, um, into the way in which this is problematized. Um, I won't read through all of that, but it's it's just a longer explanation from the OECD about why it matters. So while on the project we accept the rationale that um, diversity in public life is desirable, that it's a good thing, that it has uh, good public outcomes. We accept that. Um, <clears throat> but we go beyond that and start from a premise that it, it's a good in itself, regardless of the implications and consequences it has. And we start that also from an understanding of, of a rights framework, which is a right to participate in public life, a right to be involved in determining the nature of your society or of your academy uh, and other aspects of private of public life. I keep doing that. Of public life, not least of all in civil society, the participation in shaking and moving and um, agitating around what sort of society you want to see and what it wants, what you want it to be doing. So we also start from the assumption that public life has a primarily male profile. Uh, and that is something that is a problem in itself. So to, to disrupt that, to make changes to it, is essentially a very disruptive act. So do we want to think about why that can happen and how that can happen? Deeming that then essentially of itself worthy of public study is where we start from. Not just the impact it might have, but that is, is, as a process in itself uh, that is of interest to us. And that's where we're looking at how women get to be those, those who disrupt, as you say, one woman in senior management, in the directorate team, is, is really quite a, a story worth telling. It is a reflection on the LSE, but there is a story about which women get there as well. Um, and that's what we're looking at. <clears throat> so what we want to do is to broaden the base from which we can look at this, this area of work, this area of experience, and to go beyond what is traditionally involved in the study of leadership, because this isn't so much about leadership per se, it's about how women get to those positions of leadership. It's about what lies behind that endpoint, if it is an endpoint. Um, and we want to I include a broader range of women than have been included in, in most leadership studies. So, <clears throat> sorry, I'm having a little trouble here. So rather than just look at where most studies have gone before, which is the business sector, women and men in uh, the US and in Europe, um, and primarily those who are able-bodied, what we've tried to do is to draw on women's experiences across the globe, and we're going through all the regions, and I'll run you through that in a moment, um, make sure we call on and include women who are <clears throat> have disabilities or who are minority groups, or who are lesbians in particular, and make sure we try and capture some of those experiences as well. And the four areas where we've decided to focus are politics, diplomacy, academia, and civil society. Um, and it's very interesting when you look at the literature, there's actually not a great deal on, particularly on uh, diplomacy and civil society. So I said I'd come back to some data and I've compiled some of it here for you. We start with women in political life. And studies tell us so far, and this is quite a recent set of data from the 
uh, international parliamentary un- interparliamentary union and the and the UN showing that only only 9 out of 152 heads of state uh, are female uh, 15 out of 193 heads of government are women and only about 22% of parliamentarians across the world are women those of you who've done any work on this will know that it's a figure it's a sort of figure that's been used and bandied about for many years unfortunately this seems to be a fairly resistant proportion not really amenable to much change um, the same study gives us some regional averages, which are also quite interesting. And they, again, seem to hover around the 20% mark, going up to uh, 25% in Americas. But of course, the Nordic countries, as many of you might expect, have uh, crashed that barrier uh, in a big way, although Rwanda itself as a country has done very well in terms of women's representation in Parliament, crossing the 50% barrier uh, and becoming an international lead for a while. Um, so those are, those are the rather unimpressive figures about women in politics. We had um, a lecture by someone called Professor Sue Carroll earlier in the project. I can't remember when it was. Last year. And she's done a study of women in politics in the USA. It was very... You were there, Alice. It was a very interesting study where she went through her own data about how women in the States got into political life. Not seniority necessarily, but into political life. And she had a little um, investigation of, of, of Hillary Clinton's chances of running. And she had a slide which I thought was quite good in terms of capturing how women are judged. And this is the language that was used about Hillary's uh, desirability or not to the general public, where she had a slide quoting Rush Limbaugh saying, will Americans really want to watch a woman get older before their eyes on a daily basis? Of course, we know the stuff about women judged about how they look, how they dress, what their hair's like, whether they wear kitten heels or not. Um, But this was, for me, a really particularly insidious comment about um, the uh, undesirability and preferably the invisibility of women who are of an older age. Um, Turning to diplomacy, the diplomatic world is a very interesting one. I want to give you some quotes from the interviews we've had in a moment. But um, in uh, 2014, uh, data showed that only 14% of heads of missions, so ambassadors and high commissioners, only 14% of them uh, were women. And of the key and the high-status postings, which are London, New York, and Washington. You see the figures there. The highest is 18% in New York, down to 14 in Washington, and 13% here in London. Not too impressive at all. Um, in the Academy, and here we come to your experience, perhaps, uh, the data actually here isn't terribly reliable, and the language used to describe positions of seniority varies from place to place. What we're doing is looking at professorial roles and above. Um, in, the, in the literature we've looked at uh, from Europe, 30%, they say, of all academic positions are held by women. It doesn't seem so bad. It's not where it should be. But 15% only of women, uh, of senior positions are occupied by women. And what they describe as senior doesn't necessarily have continuity across the different countries in Europe. That's some of the problem with the data. In terms of the heads of higher education institutions, Sweden up again uh, near the top at 39%, but for the rest of Europe, it varies between 5 and 10%. I think only one of our Russell Group universities is headed by a woman. Mm. One. Not too great. Again, in civil society, we don't have 
a great deal of data. There's a little bit of study from the U.S. and a little bit from here. Uh, so looking at not-for-profits in the U.S., 16% of them had women's uh, CEOs. That's in 2009. That's for the uh, organizations with a turnover of over $50 million. Now, if you look at lower thresholds of turnover, you get quite different figures. So uh, below... Um, uh, tw uh, between over 25 million and below 50 million, um, the number, of, the percentage of women is at 25 percent. Goes down to a smaller organisation with a, a turnover of two and a half million, goes up to 40 percent. So there seems to be a relationship, an indirect relationship between the size and the value of the organisation with who heads it. Um, in the UK, again by funds, um, the 100 largest charities have 27% of, uh, of them are women directors, and only 9% have women chairs. And an interesting finding from this particular study, which came from uh, an organization called Women Count, found that 65% of charities with female trustees, so women on the board, also had a female chair. So the direct link there, but not, as far as I'm aware, the majority of female trustees, just the presence of women on the board made a difference as to who ends up chairing it. So those are the data. We know the data, and we're not terribly impressed by the data. But what we don't know is, and what we want to learn from, is the accounts and the experiences of women who've reached those positions of seniority. So those are the journeys we're talking about, and those are the journeys we're trying to investigate. We had aimed to conduct about 40 interviews, and we thought if we did really well, we might do 50. Um, but what's been fascinating is how many women want to talk about their stories and how many women want to suggest other women to talk to. Uh, and we've ended up already with 80 interviews done. Um, and I think we're going to call it a day there, <laughs> even though there are other women who I think we could talk to and who are still being suggested to us. Um, we've conducted semi-structured interviews. We've had a core area of investigation that we've carried through across every interview. Um, and what, cons what comes around that is what de is dependent on what the stories are that women tell. We've used purposive and sample and snowball sampling, so we've gone out and looked for women in these positions, and we've also asked them who else we should speak to. Uh, we have done primarily qu quantitative analysis using in vivo software, but when I say we have done, this is where I feel a little bit of a fraud, because since we doubled our sample size, we're pushed back inevitably the point at which we can start the analysis. So all I can give you today is indications of the emerging uh, themes and questions and comments that are coming out. It's not definitive at this stage, but it is interesting. Um, <clears throat> the two primary questions we're, we're looking at are what are the social organization, organizational, familial, and political circumstances um, experienced by women who hold senior positions? What do we know about their particular backgrounds? And secondly, what can we learn from that in terms of uh, lessons for those women who want to follow and for organizations who want to change their practice and the way they do things so that they get a more balanced uh, profile at, at senior positions in their organizations. So we've got 80 interviews. I'm going to go through those in just a minute. But the Alison Weatherfield Foundation allowed us to have visiting fellows on the project. So women in those senior positions who could come and sit with us for a little time and reflect or be able for long, um, in-depth work with us 
uh, to explore their journeys. And we've had, uh, we've lined up five fellows, two of whom have already been uh, been to us, and they are uh, these these particular women. So Her Excellency Joyce Banda, who is the first president of Malawi, the first woman to head a state in Southern Africa uh, at all. Uh, and she brings not only political experience but also civil society uh, experience. And Her Excellency President Rosa Altenbaeva was the first woman <coughs> president of Kyrgyzstan but also the first woman to head a state in Central Asia. Uh, she had a background in diplomacy, she was also in politics, and she was an academic. So it's interesting that the women actually cover several of the sectors that we're interested in. Professor Sylvia Tamale will be joining us not next week but the week after, and she's an academic lawyer from Makerere University in Uganda who has also been active in civil society work. And then we have uh, former Prime Minister Julia Gillard from Australia, who obviously has a political background. And then lastly, in June, also uh, Professor Ruth Simmons, who uh, is an academic and was the first woman and the first black person both to head an Ivy League university in the States. There's some nice pictures of two of our friends. <laughs> It's nice to put pictures into presentations, I think. Um, so there's two happy visiting fellows who came to speak for us, President Rosa Ottenbaeva and Joyce Bander, um, both of whom actually gave some great comments and reflections in their talks, both of which are available on a podcast, which you can access through uh, the ATP website. Um, the other thing we've done, which is slightly different, is we found a fantastic woman who scribes by illustration. And... We found her, or rather she found us, we found each other by accident because she came to the Joyce Bander lecture and she was obviously taking her notes as she does. And she tweeted her picture and we were really impressed and we got in touch with her and got a proper version of it and she coloured it in and did it really nicely for us. So we're, we're collecting some of these visual um, recordings and, 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 well, yeah, illustrations of, of the project. And, Jane, this is partly what's going to be in the festival tomorrow that you mentioned. So I just want to credit her, Sylvia Alba, who's been doing this work for us. I have another picture of her at work in a, in a moment. So we, I said we conducted 80 interviews, and we've tried to spread out across the four sectors. It's not always been even, but you can see here the number, the distribution across the four sectors uh, amongst the 80 interviews. Um, a lot of women have come from politics, easier to access, easier to find, in much more in the public domain than others say, diplomats and academics especially, um, because, primarily because um, they live in a less you know, exposed way, I suppose, academics mm. and diplomats. Um, and we've had 17 interviews with women heading up civil society organisations. As I said, we try to cover... Uh, an international spread and our interviews by region are on this graph. Um, nine from Africa, 13 from Asia, uh, four from the Pacific. Europe outside the UK, we've had 16 interviews. Uh, UK itself, because it's so easy to get people here compared to the rest of the world, we've had 20 interviews. 10 from the Americas outside the US and eight from the US itself. So I think we've done reasonably okay in getting an indicative spread in terms of the range of experience and contexts that women have worked in. 
So, as I say, we haven't finished analysis. We, in fact, we're barely, we've started, and we're going to immerse ourselves in this and only this the next couple of months. Um, but I started looking at some of the data with Jade and with Daria, who's not here at the moment. And we're looking at some of the sociodemographic factors as well as the personal accounts of experiences. Um, and we've looked at half the sample in terms of the sociodemographic data. Of, uh, of the 40 women we've looked at so far, you can see a distribution there in terms of their marital status, which I think is quite interesting, or their relationship status. So of those 40, half were married, um, a quarter were single, and others had long-term partners or were divorced uh, or in civil partnerships or widows. A couple are unclear, and we need to go back and check them. So you, if you add that up, you see there's two missing. Um, and then the other thing is about children. The, the perennial question, can women combine demanding careers with being mothers is a, is a question that comes up a lot. In fact, we don't even have to ask it. Women tend to talk about it. Um, and you can see there that some, quite a few women don't have children, and uh, some women have very few children. Uh, but others have managed to combine their careers with having a number of children. Um, uh, we're going to need to do more on that. But there is a question about to what extent um, women who've made, who've made sort of the top echelons of their chosen field have been able to combine, um, thank you, combine motherhood roles with professional careers. And later on we talk about, in their interviews, about how they've been able to do that for those who have. Many talk about incredibly supportive partners. A lot of them talk about men and how supportive men have been. Some say absolutely not. I couldn't do it with children at all. <coughs> we're looking at, at the interviews. We're doing coding of the transcripts. It takes a lot of time. And what we're doing is inductive coding. So we're seeing what stories, what narratives, what themes emerge, and then we're using that to code the rest of the text. Um, I would, don't think I'm going to go through all, the, all of this, but just to say that there is um, quite an involved, detailed coding process underway. Um, we have done some more in-depth analysis of the coding of 20% uh, of the interviews so far. That's 16 interviews, where we've looked primarily at these, these themes. Family background, education, and what women talk about in terms of upbringing, where they've got support, what challenges have they have met and how they overcame them, what are their reflections on their journey and what would they like to say in terms of lessons for people who want to follow them, the women who want to follow them? Now, I gave you a little bit about, uh, about marital status and children for a larger sample, but in terms of the background, this chart gives you the sort of information we're actually compiling at the moment. So how, how old were they when they got into particular positions? Um, do they have children? Were they raised by what sort of family? Two parents, one parent, grandparents, and so on. Um, what their level of education is. And you can see there, actually, the level of education is quite high for most women. I was looking again today at a larger sample, and there were several who hadn't gone beyond high school education. So I think those are worthy of a particularly, of a little bit more investigation. But it's fascinating information, um, and we're going to be doing a lot more with it, and we'll be sharing that once that's, once that's done. The other thing we'll be sharing with you, and it's in fact online now, I don't know if you can access it, Jade is vignettes, really, of the stories that women have told us. And on the, um, above the parapet, 
website is something we're calling the face wall where every woman who's given us permission to share her story and identify her and we'll have a photo up and if you click on one you will get a little bit about her story who she is particularly interesting parts of what she told us um, and uh, we hope that this will be quite interesting she was the first <coughs> she was the youngest UK ambassador at the age of 32 32 she became an ambassador so she has in a number of ways some interesting stories to tell um, you're going to well, our own Francesca is here Francesca Club from the LSC um, Shaley Williams who is actually on our advisory group for the project uh, and, and so on We'll be adding to this each week as we get more ready. And for some of the women there, you will have uh, access to the videos. We're making video interviews of some of the women who are willing to go on camera with their stories. I have to say some were not. In fact, some were not willing to use their names at all. And that's, as far as I'm concerned, that's absolutely fine. Because what was more valuable for us was the story rather than the attribution. Um, one, one diplomat, in fact said, I'm going to tell you everything because my story is so interesting, but you cannot, absolutely cannot say my name because I'm identifiable. But her story is really interesting. So as I say, what we did was we, we in these, this small sample of, of the 20%, we've looked at uh, how, how women made progress, what supports they had, and what challenges they, they met. In terms of support and what they call progress, how did you make progress? These were the, the themes and the points that came up quite frequently. They had support from, when we asked them, where did you get most support for your progression? They talked about employers in terms of flexible working or in terms of training or advice and mentoring. They talked about their own families, their partners, peers, and role models and mentors came out quite a lot, but not in a single simplified way. Very different experiences of mentoring and who were... Um, desirable mentors. So specific supports like that were mentioned by um, uh, six, all 16 women in the sample and uh, employer structures such as flexible working were mentioned by nine of the 16 in terms of how they, how they move forward. Exposure there relates to women who had, uh, through their upbringing or their childhood, some knowledge of the field into which they went and became senior practitioners. So daughters of politicians or daughters of diplomats who then went on to become diplomats. That's, a, that's quite a recurrent theme. And some women, not that many actually, talked about having specific strategy, knowing who they wanted to be and what they wanted to be and setting out to be that person. But interestingly, of this sample, only two women talked about, that, about their journey in those terms. Um, I've taken, a, I've taken a few extracts, which I'm not going to be able to read in full, uh, from some of the interviews that we uh, have looked at, that we've had. And this is one I particularly liked of a diplomat from Asia who talked about going very quickly from, straight from university into her foreign affairs ministry. And she uh, was sent abroad quite quickly and then she had a child and she asked to be allowed to stay uh, in her home country while her child was young. And they were very accommodating and enabled her to do that for 11 years before she was posted abroad again. And she said that um, senior women, in her, in her experience, 
are more often single or divorced. She's not sure that we are women who can actually have it all. She said she had no role models uh, when she had children. There was nobody she could look to in terms of balancing uh, the motherhood and the career roles together. And she found that quite a, a difficult place to be in. A theme that comes up quite a lot for us, and I'm going to come back to this at the end if we have time, is inter- what we're calling intersectionality. The com- complexity of not only being a woman, but being a woman with other areas of, of marginality or discrimination or disadvantage. And one thing that comes up a lot is age. This particular uh, diplomat said to her when she first became a high commissioner that she was too young to be a diplomat, too young to be an ambassador because what it meant was that she'd be one phone call away from the Prime Minister. The implication is that she couldn't handle that responsibility and make those very nuanced judgments and political calls. Um, Another woman who's a professor from uh, the US, a black woman, was talking about how she, she developed a sense of critical engagement and political awareness. Um, ah, you haven't got that. I'm going to read you this little bit. Um, she said, uh, the dinner, when she was a very young girl, she said, <clears throat> the dinner table was an opportunity for the family to share our experiences during the day, but also to think about what our experiences meant what the implications of them were, what we had to say about what we were learning, what we were seeing, what we were experiencing. Our dinner conversation was about life, and it was about how we planned to live it and what we thought about different things. So I guess my parents considered themselves, I don't know if they'd use this terminology, but instilling critical thinking from earliest moments of cognition to exist, not just because you exist, but to interact with the world you're existing in and to understand it, to intervene in it, to move within it. And so that basically, so that basically became our modus operandi, both in the family and then as I moved through the world. I thought it was a really fascinating understanding of how she, very early, <laughs> was thinking in a very uh, intellectual and academic way. Um, she also talked about gender and race and the relationship between a woman who's with a man and a woman who's not with a man and her place in society. And she lost her father and her brother at quite an early age. And that left her and her mother alone. <clears throat> she said, it was almost like half the house wasn't even lived in anymore. And I think the other thing that really hit me more uh, and, and probably is a source of a lot of my gender analysis is I saw what difference it made to lose men. I think they just didn't know what to do with a family that wasn't a family with a man in the center of it. And so my mum's a widow in a society shaped around the idea that you're recognizable through your attachment to a man. And if you don't have one to attach yourself to, there's a certain social death that you have to navigate. And I saw that early in my life. I think that was a very clear um, direction setting for her in terms of who she would become and what she would do. Have you got civil society? I've got civil society either. Okay. Something's gone wrong with the slides. Sorry about that. Another thing that comes through quite a lot is that women say they didn't, as I say, they didn't set out to be who they became. Um, Some said it was accidental. Some said I wasn't special. I was just ordinary. In fact, quite a lot of women said that. Uh, This particular quote is from uh, a woman who heads up an, an NGO in this country. And she echoed what a lot of women said, which was that they did what they did in response to other people's suggestions. So she said, somebody said, why don't you apply for this management job? And I thought, oh, yes, that sounds quite interesting. 
but it wasn't... I mean, I know some people say, by the time I'm 35, I want to be doing this. I wasn't driven in that way. I was taking charge of my career much more uh, by the time I was in my early 30s. And she reflects on her style of heading her organization and leading her teams. I suppose I like to think that I've recruited and supported and promoted talented women in my career, and that's really important. Sometimes it was very challenging because people misunderstanding each other and so on. And on the other hand, the benefits were amazing. She's talking about the benefits of uh, having diverse teams in terms of disability, ethnicity, gender, and sexual orientation. And the other thing she did, she says she was very reflexive, very open about being her own experience. Sorry. So, for example, she said, I've had experiences myself with mental health difficulties. I say that publicly. I'm in a civil partnership with a woman. I say that publicly. So I try not to keep these things hidden and secret. So women are quite reflective about what impact they want to have on people around them and how, um, what sort of legacy they want to leave for others. You've got, Annalite, you've got progress here, which we've done. So if we can go on to challenges. So we asked women again what challenges they had in their journey how they, and how they dealt with them. And here are the sorts of things they talked about quite explicitly. Bullying, um, the, a culture which was um, unsupportive, structures which didn't help them. Lots of women talked about intersectionality. The two most important ones that have come out so far are age and ethnicity alongside gender. Um, Male-dominated male environments and old, old boys' networks, those were the sorts of things that, that women talked about most. And then there were stuff uh, that were about themselves rather than the context around them. So even these women who are presidents, um, vice-chancellors, professors, uh, diplomats, and heading up NGOs talked about lack of confidence, experienced sexual harassment, the language that was used about you have to open your legs to get on, um, this, this is the language being used this year with women we're talking to. They observed that they had slower promotion than men. They felt they had to work harder than men. And very few talked about having no challenges at all. In terms of overcoming these, again, a lot of women talked about their personal characteristics, their sense of determination, their own confidence, and their resilience, being thick-skinned, bouncing back when you get knocked down. Some talked about passion and a commitment to be who they wanted to be. Others talked about making your behavior and your style of working adapt to the context in which you find yourself rather than taking that on and changing the context in which um, you find yourself. So you find both there. But what you see, what you're starting to see here, I think, I hope, is that we haven't found a single story to tell about how women get to the top. The diversity in that story itself is quite interesting. As I say, it's early days. And when we asked women to reflect on their journeys, they gave us really broad, sweeping brushstrokes about their reflections. Some said, well, what I had to do in the end was behave like a man. I couldn't be who I was. I had to imitate and mimic the men around me. Other women said, we want, I want to fight. I had to fight to be taken seriously. Um, that around them, they didn't see necessarily that having more women uh, in position around them meant there was greater gender uh, equality, that there shouldn't be an assumption that the two are the same. Like I said before, there's a reflection that most women in senior position are single, and that even when women organize well, they uh, prefer to have men leading them. 
I don't know how much longer. Should I stop talking? Okay. Well, I, I, I might skip a couple and go to right time, right place, do I? So an interesting phrase that came up a huge amount in our interviews was that I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Or I was lucky. And we're going to have to look into that a bit more because it took a lot of pressing. I'm talking about ministers in government, uh, really senior women, who said I was in the right place at the right time. And you'd have to press quite hard in the interview to try and unpick that. Um, why was it you and not somebody else who was in the right place at the right time? Who decided that it was you? Did you have a sense of your own worth? Did somebody else have to give that to you? Um, but the, the, the fact that it came up quite a lot is a really, for us, a really significant factor. That particular phrase was used by so many women. Um, and we're going to need to look into luck a little bit more. What women mean by luck? Is it um, literally chance? that something happened or is it about the circumstances which uh, came together to give them the advantages they had to move forward so was it about being born to parents who could introduce them to the life and the world into which they went or was it this like flipping a coin and uh, something happened well I know what I, th what I think it is but we've got to look at the data and see what comes out of that um, I've got a last picture for you, which is uh, Sylvia doing her scribing last week when we held an initial round table to talk to some people about here's what's emerging, what would you like us to investigate, what would be useful for you? Because we want this to be not a freestanding piece of research, but something that makes a difference for women looking to reach seniority and for political parties, diplomatic training academies, universities, in terms of how they um, ensure that they have a more fair, diverse, and uh, balanced uh, senior representation. Um, I think, just lastly, I, I think one of our most important contributions from this project is going to be looking at intersectionality. There's very, very little uh, in the literature that understands or has tried to understand in any depth what those overlapping experiences look like, how they're experienced and how they're dealt with and what they mean. And as I said, the two themes that have come up for us most have been around age and gender and ethnicity and gender. And we will be looking at those in particular detail, and I think that's an offering we can make that will be useful. Excellent. Thank you. That's great. Thank you very much, Perna. So we've now got um, plenty of time for questions and discussion. Obviously, we're quite a small group, but um, for the reasons I mentioned before, if you could use the microphone, that would be really helpful just to help the recording. Um, so have any Comments, questions, observations um, that you'd like to throw to Perna? Oh, gosh, lots. Okay, I, I suggest we collect about two or three, um, and then you can respond to those. Okay, so let's start with you in the middle. Yeah. Do you need the mic? You could indicate just briefly who you are and if you're I, student I am an MSc student in mathematics at the London School of Economics. And uh, it's very interesting that uh, you chose bullying as one of the factors to study. And I read a book called uh, This Child Will Be Great by Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the president of Liberia. And she, she, wrote, a, uh, she wrote about um, domestic abuse, um, uh, the, the horrible things that she went through to the point you know, where her, her young children had to, like, come out and defend her against her husband. So I'm, I'm very curious about, you know, how, you know, accomplished women, domestic abuse happened to so many people, psychological abuse, you know, misogyny doesn't just happen at, you know, at work, it also happens at home, and what the effect on women can 
can affect how they perform or are perceived by their coworkers. So I, I, I don't know, um, are there in your interviewees, do people talk about uh, domestic abuse or their experience in it? And if not, um, what, what, what are your views on it and how, how can women? Because I think another thing is oftentimes it becomes a he says, she says, you know, like coworkers, either male or female, wouldn't be willing to support these women. How can women who go through that kind of psychological trauma can continue to succeed? Okay. okay. Thank you. So lady in the scarf just behind. Thank you. Um, two separate questions. I work in sort of digital marketing. Um, so I was just wondering if anyone sort of mentioned in terms of support, whether uh, sort of life in a digital age is going to help women more find um, role models, find mentors, learn about what other women are doing around the world, if that would be a factor maybe for the next generation of women. Um, and then just to um, get a bit of clarification when you talked about age, because obviously there was a sort of Hillary Clinton, you know, looking too old. And then on the other side, the ambassador who is too young. When people said age was a barrier, is it too young or too old? Because it was such different things. And yeah. just be interesting to find out where that balance was. Excellent. Okay. So I think there's somebody else who had their hand up. Yeah. Thank you. At the end. Hi, thank you. My name is Olivia Gipner from LSE Ideas. Um, I was just curious about what factors you can already tell are different from what influences men. Like, for example, the stuff on, uh, I was lucky, it was a coincidence what happened. I, I, from my personal experience, would say that men say that just as often. So maybe you already have some insights on what differentiates the stories. Great, thank you. Okay, so that's a good, good, good set to kick you off there, Perna, I think. Yep. Okay, I didn't get names, so I'm going to call you the mathematician, the di digital marketer, marketer, and the ideas woman. Okay. <laughs> so, um, yes, Helen Johnson so did talk about that. I suggest you watch our... We did get a video with Joyce Panda. We got a video. Um, when she came to speak, uh, she talked not only in her interviews and one-to-one, but she mentioned in her, in her public lecture her own experience of domestic violence and of leaving her husband and of having children. Um, and for her, it was a real motivating factor because it helped her to understand the experience of many women in her country. For her, it was a sense of solidarity and understanding of the women she wanted to serve. But it also drove the agenda for what she wanted to do when she went into politics. And the first thing she says she did when she went into politics was to pass a law on domestic violence. Um, so, yes, women talk to us about it, but they talk to us in different ways. Not everybody is as open as Joyce Bander. She's told that story a lot, and she was content. I don't know if happy is the right word, but was willing to talk about it in public. There was one woman I interviewed who... When you're talking to women in senior positions, you often can't get directly to them. Our people have to talk to their people, and you have to set something up and see what happens. One woman I interviewed who was a minister in her government... Um, sat down with her whole team around her to do this interview. And I'm saying, um, I'm trying to say from this team, we should have this interview in confidence. It didn't work. So we did this interview, and I felt quite a stilted way. And at the end of it, as we were walking away from our seats, she said to me in my ear, she said, you need to call me. I need to tell you about violence. Um, and so we had to find another way to speak. We still haven't done it yet. So I've got her, her public story, which she's prepared to tell in front of her team, but not the real one the behind it that she thinks is important that she wants me to know. Um, so I think you know, that experience of personal adversity, abuse and violence is probably more common than we expect. 
We know that anyway from decades of work on violence. And there's no reason to assume that women who reach senior positions aren't the same as the rest of the women in the world. They've experienced it too. Um, so, yeah, I think your question was, do women talk about it? Yes, they talk about it. And I've found, I mean, I've worked on violence for 20 years, and I, I certainly know that women appreciate the opportunity to tell their experience and to have that validated and to have that place in a bigger story about themselves. And in a way, we're doing some of that through, through this. It'll come up quite a lot. Sexual harassment comes up quite a lot in women's, women's stories. I'll look to Jade now again because she's done actually more interviews than I have now. Um, so between us, we'll have that bigger picture. Do you want to add on, on anything on violence? No, those are the two examples I was thinking. Oh, okay. Um, I'm not aware, again, I'll look at um, Jade for, the, for this, on about women talking about digital possibilities, to be honest, social media and digital um, stuff. Have you had interviews with Some that? younger women that we've spoken yeah. to. So we are speaking to women who are obviously at the top of their field, so they do primarily tend to be older, but we have spoken to some key women who are younger but still at the top of the fields. And where digital technology has come in is that they've where, from what I can recall now off the top of my head, women have said it's been good because it allows me to put my child to bed and then I can go back to work and I can work until midnight. Um, it allows me to just keep going. So in a way, they credit it as facilitating their, their journeys, but in a way that doesn't detract from the fact that they still have got to take full-on caring responsibilities when they're at home. So that's the majority of how it's come up. Age is a barrier. It's not so much age as a barrier that women talk about. It's about the perception of their ability to do their job and their age, mostly youthfulness, being considered an impediment. Um, so the, the, I, you're too young for that job has come up quite a lot in terms of what difficulties women experience, like the 32-year-old diplomat. But there are others, too, who said, well, I was perceived as too young for such a senior position. Um, ministers, diplomats, they would be it. They, women would often walk into a room um, where they would meet their counterpart or whoever they were supposed to be meeting and would be mistaken for the secretary. There are lots of examples of that happening. And in most cases, women just take it in good humour. But the, the frequency with which it comes up is quite telling. Older women don't seem to talk about that as a barrier they talk about their age as possibly more as an advantage when they're older I think <clears throat> but what older women give us is a really interesting historical account one of the academics who's also a policy person told us about not being able to she started teaching as an academic in the 50s and she said that at that time she was not allowed to supervise male PhD students it just wasn't women couldn't do that so yeah, you know, we're learning different things from women who've got you know a different sense of history and experience behind them. So I can't think of many women saying I was seen as too old. Although Sue Carroll's slide was really interesting, but as we go through the interviews, we might we might see some more. I don't remember anybody saying that, but but we'll think on it. Jay's clearly thinking on it. Um, we're not doing a comparative study between men and women. What we will do is once that's our dominant themes come up is look at what the leadership literature says of, of men's accounts but that's not our primary focus it's about trying to understand um, through, our, through our primary research what women's experiences are and later on we'll look at what uh, is said about men because there's so much more literature on men I don't think that's going to be our major contribution Excellent
Okay, so um, any more questions? <laughs> okay, uh, does anybody else have a question before we go to maths? <laughs> okay, off you go. Thanks. Um, so in the case of, you know, someone like Dominique Strauss-Kahn, <laughs> you know, who, you know, before the scandal broke, you know, like almost ran for the presidency of a country. And I'm sure, you know, tons of women who's been abused by him are probably like just, you know, holding in their anger and resentment into how could someone, you know, being so evil and cruel can arise such high. So for... So, um, you know, when you at your work or your career and you know someone who's a serial abuser or who's just, you know, plain misogynist, but present this wonderful, trustworthy image to everybody else around them, like, what can women do about that kind of transgression, about that kind of image, you know, he says, she says situation? Okay, well, I, I think that's a quite a long conversation to have and happy to have it. It's not what we're researching, to be honest. Um, it, is, it is sometimes... We've had women saying to us that I was in an environment where it was just normal to be abused or to rise through the ranks by having sex or to giving into sexual advances from men, that sexual harassment was normal, in inverted commas, in the sense that it was the norm. Um, and some have said, the older women have said, actually, I've seen that change a little bit. Mm. And others are saying, I've, I've experienced less now because I'm older. Um, but we've talked to them about how to deal with it. And a lot of that has been networking with other women, working out when to speak about things. But in terms of the general issue about he says, she says, is a bigger one about a failure to believe women who are abused and children too. And we see that slowly starting to surface in our public discussions and policy debates. But it, to be honest, it's not our clear focus. It's not really what we're, we're homing in on here. Thank you. Yes, maybe with a scarf. Hello, um, I'm a PhD student from the University of Edinburgh. I'm currently in London doing um, my fieldwork research. Um, and I'm speaking to women who are involved in policymaking, um, particularly around the area of prostitution policy. Um, and I think one of the things that I found really striking have been the very um, systematic experiences of silencing that women have experienced, not from um, within an organization, but from out with the organization. And I think that that probably comes back to the thing that you were saying about kind of the internet age and how's that affecting. And certainly I think for the women that I'm speaking to, it's, it's been a very negative experience um, because it has really opened up avenues of, of, of abuse that haven't been um, kind of available to people before, particularly behind the kind of the, um, the curtain of anonymity that things like Twitter and things provide. So I'm just wondering whether or not any of your, um, your participants have spoken about experiences of the external world and how the external sort of how people within the external world have um, have sort of responded to them taking high office um, and how they sort of coped with that. We've, we've asked every woman we've interviewed how they've experienced the ability to carry out their job and whether being a woman, how they, whether they perceive being a woman made a difference to that. Interestingly, I think almost every diplomat has said, once I represented my country, I was just taken seriously and treated like a serious person. <clears throat> because you're there representing your country and you have that authority and that credibility. Academics? 
I have some examples of politicians. So politicians who are obviously in a much more so that all of these fields are public life. And I know some high-level women who are so much more public because they're politicians. And so they have online profiles. And, and I've definitely heard some examples of how their online profiles have facilitated a lot of personal messages to them, um, either shouting at them or saying, you are, you're, some of them, for example, are women on the right wing. And they say, oh, they say, the example I'm thinking of, they said, well, on the left wing, we're supposed to be, they're supposed to be the feminists. But on the right, I'm a politician on the right wing, and I'm getting all these lefty people shouting at me <laughs> and calling me names. But also uh, examples of politicians with public profiles who've been asked out, saw you on TV, I see you single, do you want to go out sometime? So there are some examples of that from, from the stories that we've heard. Excellent, yes. Lady at the front. Good evening. Um, my name is Dora. Um, I'm a postgraduate student here at the LSE. And I was just wondering that, in my opinion, there are so many factors which influence our decisions on how many children we want to have. And I just have this impression that we tend to assume that a woman decided not to have a child because um, she just couldn't have a, a, a career and the family at the same time. And I was just wondering if these women uh, precisely said that they didn't want to have a child because um, they were focusing on their career, or it's just an assumption? Few, of the interviews I've done, very few women have deliberately said, uh, said that, that it was a deliberate choice not to have children. Although they have said it's difficult to have children, and they haven't had very many. Um, they've talked about husbands who've given up work and been the stay-at-home parent. Um, they've talked about parents being involved in childcare. Um, but when I was looking at that sample of 40 of half of our interviews and seeing how many women had had how many children, it was interesting that so many had had none. Although they didn't necessarily talk about it as a strategy. There's something there to look at a bit more. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah in, in the main, what, what I agree with what Pan was saying, some women said, I could only enter the seniority aspect of of public life once my children were much older. Um, they do talk about it in different ways. And as Pernod was saying, we've got such a breadth of experiences that there are many different stories. But we have heard some stories of, I remember one woman told me, I have a son. I only have one child. I would like to have more, but I can handle having one son because of what I have to do. So I couldn't take any more children, so I made a deliberate choice to have one child. So, so it does come up. Yes, maybe the bank. Yes. A digital marketer. Um, not about digital. Okay. <laughs> um, I worked on an election campaign in South Africa a couple of years ago for Mampela Rampele, who civil society, politics, um, academia crosses them all as well. You've got Helen Zilla down there as well, so two sort of very um, high-level women. Obviously, things with Mampela Rampele's party... Um, she kind of bowed out of politics and made some very, very bad decisions and let a lot of people down, walked away from it all. Do you think, and this might not be in the research, it's more maybe your opinion, um, a sort of a fall from grace from someone above the parapet, sort of below, makes more waves and has a bigger negative impact if they're a woman than if they're a man, such as a Dominic Strauss-Kahn? I 
Mm. I can't base this on data, okay? But I think I think women get judged more harshly, um, and that, that sort of ease ease to judge that people seem to have both makes it hard for women to get to the top, to be recognised for what she brings, and it also you know, goes into overdrive if she makes a mistake or steps back in any way. So I do think all of that is true. Um, but I want to balance that story with... I mean, this is trying to look at the good stuff. This is trying to look at where it works for women and what's made it work. Um, but even in our, in our sample of women... And I'm going back to people who've been public, so Joyce Bander, who lost her election last year, how she's been um, vilified ever since. I'm not in a position to make a judgment call as to whether that's justified or not, but I'm watching how tough it's been for her um, since she lost the election, which she says she didn't lose, but anyway. Um, uh, no, somebody steals it from me, right? Um, yeah, I do, I do think those, those judgments are very harsh and very quick for women. And the DSKs are the unusual examples in terms of media and public attention being quite so condemnatory as it has been, because it's quite an exa extreme example, which isn't necessarily to say it's the only example, but it's one that's got public attention and people know about. I don't know. You might want to... Do you want to say anything about that? No. Oh, I think it's really hard to... Tell. I I know there was um, there's a perception of that. So I don't know if you saw recently. It was in the news. It was um, a, a fund manager, a female fund manager, and she got a package of 1.3 million, which actually in the fund management industry is, you know, pretty routine. Actually, not particularly spectacular. Um, and there was a lot of lot of negative press around it. And she said, "I reckon I, I'm getting this press basically because I'm a woman." And everybody said, came back and said, "Well, no, you're not." But I do also recall that in the FT a couple of weeks prior, there'd been the top three hedge fund managers uh, whose returns had been a very, very pedestrian 3 to 5%, to be frank, in a very rising market, uh, who were walking away with a package between the 32 billion, um, of which absolutely nothing was said. So it's, it's only anecdotal, but it's, it was quite striking. You know, two examples really quite close together um, of of how people are judged. Another nice one, actually, was, this is different. It's actually about how, what, what women wear and how you're judged by what you wear. And it was an Australian newsreader. And he deliberately, every day for a year, wore exactly the same suit, shirt and tie to see if any... You obviously mm. saw about this, lots of heads nodding, to see if anybody was going to make any comment whatsoever. And when you revealed that he'd done this, everybody just said, really? Did you? <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> um, whereas you know that a woman wouldn't have been able to get away with that. No. Uh, in exactly the same way. No. I've got okay. a question. Yeah. I was going to say you should come to our lecture with Julia Gillard and ask her the same question. Yes. She might have something to say about that. Yeah. Okay. I'll just any, other, any other questions or comments? Um, maybe I'll throw in a couple of things. Yeah. Thank you. Um, the, the lecture with Sue Carroll, um, she mentioned something about women being, uh, women versus men. Women were considered um, less good than men at their jobs, even when they were better qualified and had more experience. And I wonder if 
that sort of attitude towards women um, was showed up in your research in any way. And also, uh, there was a bit of research done, I think it was in 2012, and I think it was by the University of Bath, in which they looked at share prices of companies run by women, and they examined tra trading patterns in share prices when the executive traded and noted that, uh, that um, when a female chief executive traded in their company's own shares, the share price dropped the same amount as if a, or moved the same amount as if a male chief executive traded in their company's own shares, but came back more slowly. And the conclusion from that was that there was, uh, because share price and not profits um, were based on beliefs that there was sexism it, sexism in the financial markets. That's phenomenal. Yeah, so, so I mean that's just phenomenal, isn't it? As to how you that you should yeah you should be able to see that on a statistically verifiable pattern, basically, that you can you can see that that level. Though that said, the number of chief executives, uh, female chief executives, is quite small. So you've got mm. quite a small sample to be running from, but it's yeah, still quite striking. They sort of they've, yeah. Work the stats to manage it. It's a bit miserable, isn't it? Um, the Pew Research Center in the U.S. Did, has, has done some work around leadership and mm. politics and so on, and they did a really interesting piece of work where they asked the public um, uh, whether men and women are better or rank higher in certain characteristics like um, making difficult decisions, honesty, integrity, um, corruption, and so on. And um, they found that women tended to outscore men on a lot of those indicators. Then they asked the same group of people who they prefer to be their leaders. Right? You don't know. You don't need me to finish that sentence. <laughs> but that sort of that sort of yeah. sort of predetermined set about who should be in positions of authority is a really difficult one to crack. And I think that does influence. Mm. It underlines, um, and it sits behind those judgment calls that are made. Those, perhaps those trade. I mean, yeah. We're not looking at the business sector, but perhaps those sorts of issues are absolutely. Um, you know, they infuse all those other things that happen. That sort of predetermination of who is rightfully a leader or a senior figure or a public figure or a politician, um, they're very, very difficult to shift. Mm. Even when people give you rationales for them being opposite, they behave as if those were true. Which makes you wonder how any of these women got to the top exactly. at all, really. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> to get to the top. That's why this is... Yeah, but there's other perception analysis, isn't there, that, um, again, you, you may well have seen this. If you show people a picture of um, a group of people in business suits around a table and there's a man sitting at the head of the table and otherwise it's a mixed group and you ask people, OK, so who's the, who's the leader within this group mm -hmm. or this meeting? And they say, well, the man, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, if you show the same 
kind of picture, same dem- demographic, and you just shifted people around. So there, there was a woman at the head of the table, but again, everybody else has shifted around. You say, well, who's, who's the leader? Uh, in this particular meeting, and um, people would just go, well, well, it might be possibly the man, but the woman's at the top, so it'll be much more confused picture. Okay, but it won't necessarily be, well, the person at the top of the table can't be because she's a woman, right? Because mm-hmm. so she might, so she's probably not the leader. So even just as subtle as that, you haven't even you haven't done anything apart from show people a picture. Uh, as people's assumptions as actually who is likely to be in charge. Mm-hmm. And actually, I have seen research done in academia about about academia. Uh, Academics' own preferences for yeah. leaders, which actually reflects that as well. That actually, the um, that for actually, men, paradoxically, in this particular research, men were happier to have women as leaders for them than women were happy to have women as leaders. Uh, um, particular piece of research about women, yeah, women in academic yeah. life. The only thing that I would add in relation to what we're talking about is that. Again, I can recall a small sample of women who we've spoken to who are in very senior positions, but they obviously they're not at the end. They're not close to retiring. They're looking for the next senior position. They want to be the next most senior ambassador. They want to take on the next most powerful portfolio in ministerial life. And a number of them have said that they have started to, now they're at the top, they're starting to come across instances where they don't get the next promotion. And they start to have a feeling it's because the men who make the appointments don't like that there is a they that they don't quite fit the mold of what is expected and they're starting to note now and they say this is a new challenge that they're they're facing because they can't quite put their finger on it and they can't say you didn't appoint me because I was but there are some people some women who are starting to kind of assess their situation and work out what to do now that they've got to that scenario where they feel that they're not getting the next best thing because they feel that men are being appointed. So it's starting to come up, and it's interesting to see that the challenges remain even at the very highest of the level. So even once you are at the top, there are still some instances that you can't quite work out what to do. Mm. Did you find in your research, did you find idiosyncratic paths? So in other words, you've got routine paths, but one of the things that always comes up about those is that certainly in the commercial sector, if you're looking at recruitment agencies, for example, or most of, most of the jobs don't get advertised anyway. And so it very much is, you know, filled by a network of who you know. And then if they are being advertised and using recruitment consultants, the consultants just go to the same old, same old group, okay, the same old people. Uh, and so one of the arguments is that women aren't getting noticed, okay, because they're in, in those particular fora. So that suggests that actually women, if they're using the usual paths to get, to get up, uh, are going to be blocked. So I was wondering if there's any patterns that you can see um, in your research as to have, have people come at these things in a, in a very particular way. I mean, you talked about family, for example. So has there been a particular role of family where they've been able to bypass the normal routes uh, or have there been kind of other champions or mentors along the way who've kind of helped them hoik over a few barriers? Um, well, we're looking for patterns. We're mm. really, I, thought I thought patterns would jump out as much more quickly than they have and it might be that we've just got so many we've got to plough through a few more mm. before we see the patterns and maybe they'll be there at the moment I'm struck by how very diverse women's experiences are mm. but there is there is a story that's told several times about being in the well women call it the right place at the right time but actually being tapped on the shoulder mm. and invited to go into especially politics not so much the others I think mean. Um, so women who were in business mm. or who were teaching or who were academics and got a phone call and said, um, and were asked, I want you to run for this 
I want you to go into this election, or I want you to come and run my office, one of the presidents said to some, a woman who was a diplomat, actually. Mm. And she then was asked to run for office, and she was then given a portfolio straight away. Um, so that sort of um, patronage is coming mm. out as, as possibly a theme. I it's certainly yeah. coming out as a common story at the moment. And we'll need to see how widespread that is as we go through the other, the other um, interviews. Di diplomat stories, I think, are more conventional, aren't they? People, women who go to university then are employed by foreign ministries and then given not mm -hmm. bad postings or quite innovative ways of, mm. of doing their postings. Job share, being very young, taking time out and being allowed to stay at their home uh, base while their children are young. Those are mm. quite interesting stories about innovation and creativity in foreign ministries that we haven't found so commonly in, other sec in the other yeah. sectors. Including academia. Yeah. No, interesting, because you'd always think that they would be quite staid. Well, if you look at our FCO, yeah. you'd think they'd be quite staid We're and quite traditional. quite impressed by what often. we've seen in, in yeah. the foreign ministry, in different countries. Mm. Interesting. Quite, yeah. Yeah. Interesting route. So listen, I know your early days and we're quizzing you a lot about your data and you haven't sort of had a chance to do that. So I think it'd be really fascinating to, to have to, to do this again when you've been through the data mm. and sort of had mm. the, the opportunity to do the analysis. I can, I can, for anybody who's interested, we are ploughing through a lot more interviews and coding than we had anticipated, double the amount. Um, and there might be a little chance to help us with that if anybody's interested, because we are going to need a little help to get through it. If you are um, interested, we're going to look at whether we can help get some help on the coding. So if you are interested, would you please leave your contact details with Jade? The other thing I'm going to say is that we are about to submerge ourselves into the analysis um, um, if you have suggestions on where we might take the findings at the end of this, who we should take it to, whose practice we might be able to influence with our findings, then please let us know. We'd be really appreciative of that. Thank you. Excellent. I can also say that for, um, for students, actually, the three of the fellows that um, Pana mentioned earlier who are currently at the IPA or coming through the IPA uh, will be giving seminars for students, so it's an opportunity to talk to them directly. Uh, about their experiences. So there's Professor Sylvia Tamale, who um, you remember as the um, academic lawyer from Uganda, um, who was at Macquarie University and was very active in the Ugandan anti-homosexuality bill, contesting that. So she's speaking on the 4th of June at 2 to 3 p.m. And they're all listed at the... Um, we'll, you'll find we'll, give the, the, we'll give you details. But um, then Julia Gillard, who's the... XPM off Australia. She'll be here on the 22nd of June from 4 to 5. That's a fantastic opportunity to sit down uh, in a very small space and talk to somebody really about their, uh, their different experiences. And then another wonderful experience, Professor Ruth Simmons, who's the first female black woman, um, first female black woman, anyway, tautology, to head up um, uh, an Ivy League university, Brown University. So she's here on the 29th of June. Okay, from two to three. So, um, again, they'll all be listed there, and you can find them uh, from the website. But I do encourage you to go along. Yeah. There'll be um, sessions for students and staff only, mm -hmm. but they will all be giving public uh, talks as well. So if you want to get in touch with us, we can give you details. Yeah, and the public talks will be up on the LSE events website as normal. Yeah. 
Okay, so thank you very much, Bernard. That's fascinating. As I have to say, it's quite, it's quite titillating, okay, because you've, got, because you've got a little bit of data and you've done a little bit of analysis and I kind of really want to get stuck in there yes. so we can start to draw out the big patterns and, and see what might really be coming out from yeah. such a wealth of material. But thank you very much for sharing it with us thank at this you. stage. It's, um, it's, a, it's a brilliant project and I really wish you all the well. Thank you very Definitely much. Forward. Thank you for coming. Okay, thank you.